The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma, delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. And when you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Welcome to the Jill on Money Show. It's Saturday, April 30th. Hey, Mark, we're turning the tables, aren't we, today? For this weekend, I'm doing something that's like weird for me, but I'm doing it anyway because I'm such a control queen. I don't like this situation, but I was recently interviewed by uh, the folks over at Morningstar, an old friend of mine, Christine Benz, who's been writing for Morningstar for a long time, and her co-host, Jeff Patak. Um, and they host the Morning Star podcast called The Long View. Anyway, they wanted to interview me, which, you know, it's all right. We've had interviews of me on this podcast before, but it always makes me feel strange to be the interviewee rather than the interviewer. You notice that, Mark? I don't like losing that control. It's different on TV because like, you know, because I create the segment, you know, and I I develop the questions. The anchors may come up with their own spin on it, but, you know, I, I still feel like I'm in control. This totally out of control. Here is me being interviewed on the podcast, Morningstar, The Long View. We start with um, how new investors um, should be approaching markets right now. We wanted to start out by talking about all these new investors who have been pouring into the market. I think there's a lot to like about the fact that we've got new investors moving in. But do you worry that for this new group that things just might not turn out particularly well for some of these folks? I worry about that for everybody. You know, I'm a Jew from New York. I worry about everything all the time. So <laughs> it's no no doubt that there is worry. But I worry for older investors, experienced investors, young investors, mostly because investing can be so, so emotional. And um, it can be something that really does take your breath away. And so, you know, I'm not actively worrying. I'm not losing sleep over it. And And one of the greatest things about becoming um, an investor is learning how to endure some of the the ups and the downs. You know, my dad was a trader for many years and he would say to me, you know um, why they say, you know, like you're a seasoned investor. And I say, yeah, I, you know, that means you have experience. He goes, well, you know how they season a piece of meat. They pound it with a mallet. <laughs> you have to get the pounding of a mallet to become a seasoned investor, metaphorically. 
A lot of big investment firms are cautioning investors to be prepared for a period of muted returns from stocks and bonds over the next decade or so. How do you think investors should incorporate that sort of information into their plans, if at all? Um, Not at all. I just think it's nonsense. We are not, okay, we're not in the business of trying to outguess when there's going to be an up market or a down market, right? We, We sort of all know, it's like, no one really can time the market with any accuracy over time. So I don't think you should be worrying about like where the next up or down 10 or even 20% is going to be, especially if you think that's going to happen in the next year or even two years. But if you're a long-term investor, you've got more than 10 years, then I think that you just ignore it. It's a lot of noise. It really is. And it can totally take your eye off the ball. So I don't think you should be, I mean, I think it's wonderful that all these big wirehouses still think that we care what they say. And maybe some people do. I just don't. And it's almost like they're yammering away when, you know, deep down everyone knows all they want is there to be like some volatile action up or down. It creates a lot of money for them. And um, frankly, I think it's it's just a silly, silly game to play to just guess where you think the market's going. You're not going to figure it out. It's just going to go where it's going to go over the long term. What we know is you will likely make money with a diversified portfolio of low cost index funds if you save enough, stick to it over time and don't mess around. So I'm curious, you know, as as someone who is employed in media, how do you thread that needle where you, you know, want to deliver sober advice and say what you just said, but it seems like there might be some pressure potentially to sort of talk up volatility and get people scared. How have you navigated that over your career where maybe your bosses have said, oh, you know, we've really got to talk about this sexy topic that you don't necessarily think is great for end investors? First of all, I have to be honest with you, like I am just not from the media world. I'm from the investment world. And so I come at it very differently. So um, what I do is I tell them exactly what I think and I won't do certain things if they think that we should do it and I don't think we should, then I usually convince them and they trust me. And that's like the wonderful thing about being at a place for a long time. And, you know, frankly, at CBS News, we have a very broad audience We do not have the audience of people who want to know, you know, what is the next move going to be in markets? And what we have is an audience that wants to know how do movements impact me? So I think I'm blessed because I work for a great organization that trusts me. So when the market falls out of bed, that I can very calmly go on the air and say, okay, this sucks. Like, this is bad. It doesn't feel good. I get it. But your job is to hold those emotions in check and really try to ride this out. And, and, you know, I think this started when I first joined CBS in the beginning of 2009. So it was still pretty bad news coming out of the financial crisis. There was a recession, the Great Recession. Markets were turning upside down. And at the time, the guy who was running the news division said to me, you know, I think you really ought to tell people like how bad it's going to get. I said, okay, tell me how bad is it going to get? I don't know. And there's a certain amount of candor that I have that it's just like, I don't know. I know that over the long term, these things do work themselves out. It was a lot easier for me to go on the air every single day in the spring of 2020 when markets were rolling over and say, we've been here before. 
You know what I'm going to say. And Gail King just pokes at me and she says, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, hold on, but it's hard for some people. And I said, okay, let me tell you why you're going to hold on. And I think that people are really smart. They know if you give them context that they don't have to be reactive. And that's been a really great thing to see in our audience. As a financial educator, you know it can be tough to sell young investors on the merits of things like target date funds and broad market index funds. Have you hit on any effective ways to talk to people about the advantages of getting started with dollar cost averaging and these types of boring but, you know, really effective building blocks? You know, I think that it's okay to allow people to dip their toes in the water of the more esoteric stuff and riskier stuff. I think that's how you learn. You know, I grew up on Wall Street. I was an options trader. I traded gold, silver, and copper options. I know what the dopamine hit feels like when you hit it, and it feels great. So what I try to explain to people is, why don't you experiment with a teeny portion of your overall? And so do the real money, use your index funds, use retirement funds, use your target date funds, get that going. Prove to me that you've earned the ability and the discipline to do that. And this is true that like kind of my mantra, like cover your big three. Tell me that you've got your emergency reserve fund of six to 12 months of your living expenses. Tell me you've paid down your consumer debt and also probably some of your good chunk of your student loan debt. And then tell me you're maximizing your retirement account. Then you want to open a fund money account. You want to buy some crypto. You want to go nutty and buy some meme stocks. Sure. But just know that the money that you put into that fund money account is the money that you would put into any fun entertainment endeavor that you would be willing to lose. So kind of speaking of that three-prong approach, which you urge people to focus on, you know, wiping out credit card debt, focus on funding their retirement accounts, building that emergency fund. Most recently, I noticed that you were telling people to really focus on the emergency fund piece. Why is that? Is there something about this particular environment that makes you think that having liquid reserves maybe more than usual would make sense? Remember the earlier comment that I always think like the worst is going to happen, that I'm a worry ward? Right. <laughs> This is this is something that is uh, sort of in my DNA, but I think there's an interesting timing issue that is helpful, and that is before we had a once-in-a-century pandemic, I would talk about an emergency reserve fund and say, you never know what's going to happen. And what I used to kind of was a nod towards was, you know, you could lose your job or, you know, something you could get injured and, you know, you'd, you'd lose income for some reason and you'd want an emergency reserve fund. And I think that after going through what we've gone through in the last couple of years, I think people are more attuned to the idea that weird stuff can happen from out of the blue. And the people who have an emergency reserve fund, those that had six to 12 months of their living expenses socked away in, yes, a boring, barely interest-bearing account. They seem to be a lot calmer amid a crazy time. And even those folks who were already retired, who had even more than that one year that was set aside, maybe it was even two years, they were able to weather the emotional disruption that you feel when bad things happen, knowing that I don't have to go into my account, sell anything because I have to pay the electric bill. So I do think that I used to sort of say I treat all three equally. I'm nudging towards emergency reserve fund because I think that 
it is something that gives people great comfort and it can prevent you from doing something stupid. So I noticed that you said six to 12 months worth of living expenses. I think some people may have heard like three to six months. Maybe can you talk about how that seems so daunting for young investors, I think, like who are barely getting by and then, you know, to talk about having like a year's worth of of income saved or cash flow needs saved. It just seems like a lot. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, it may be a lot. It, it may not be necessary. And, you know, if you have two um, young people who are teachers and they are a couple and they have very consistent cash flow, um, maybe the six months is just fine, right? But if you had two contract workers, you know, one gig worker who is doing, you know, graphic design and with somebody or even just alone and has inconsistent income, then I think you do have to be a little bit more careful. So the range is a range. I hate rules of thumb. Everybody knows that. I get very um, petulant when it comes to giving rules of thumb. That one is a rule of thumb because it's just easy to say. But, you know, everyone's situation is different, obviously. So if Christine has this great job, totally secure, knows that, you know, if anything bad happened, there are parents there to help you out. Yeah, maybe. But I still think it is very good practice, sort of best procedure to consider, like when you're looking at investing, is that before you start going crazy investing, you really do have to have some safety net. And, you know, the next time we go into a recession, I'm going to guess, I could be wrong, but I'm going to guess that you're not going to get rounds of stimulus and extra unemployment benefits to help you out. And so when you consider how to build a financial foundation, having an ample emergency reserve fund has to be the critical aspect of this. And it's not sexy. It's like saying, you know, like, do you know how many people at work I know who are incredibly bright people who just will not get their acts together to do their estate planning? And I cannot for the life of me figure out, do they think they're not going to die? Is this something they have secret maybe? And these um, meat and potatoes aspects of financial wherewithal and wellness, to me, I'd rather talk about that all day long than talk about investments, which I find as someone who is an investment professional from like a very small child, you know, from like learning this from the beginning, that I just find that incredibly boring. And it's actually very easy to be a good investor. Again, you just have a well-diversified portfolio, you buy index funds, you put it on autopilot, and you save a bunch of money. It's not that much harder than that. You mentioned that you're a worrywart by nature. I think a worry for many now is inflation, which has surged over the past year. If people are concerned about higher inflation, what steps do you think they should take to protect their financial plans and their portfolios? Well, I think the first thing that's really interesting to me is that we're all now, like everybody's like, oh, inflation, inflation, inflation. Now you bring this up two years ago when we were at, you know, sub 2% inflation. And I loved it when people would tell me about their retirement plans. I'm like, what, what inflation rate did you use? Just out of curiosity. And then, you know, people would say one and a half, two 2%. Oh, okay, fine. Um, so I think the first thing to remember is that if you're creating a financial plan, which everybody should be, that I always plug in the higher than anticipated inflation rate and the lower than expected investment return. And then you can really start to test whether your plan holds up or not. 
Now, I, do I think that we're going to have 7% inflation for the next 30 years? No, I do not. Uh, do I think it is possible that we go from a 2% to a 7%, but only get back to maybe a 2 and 3 quarters or 3%? Yeah, that I think we could be in a, a higher inflationary environment longer than anybody would like to think about. Traditionally, when you look at inflation in general, stocks do start to kind of roll over a little bit in the beginning, but they don't do so badly in an an inflationary environment. So I still like stocks. I do like shortening the duration of bonds. Um, Having hard assets is not a terrible thing. So having a REIT or having a little commodity fund might be a decent way to do it, but I wouldn't go crazy either. I, I do think that the most interesting part is that we have a lot of people who've never seen inflation. And that goes for a number of people who are managing money, this is the younger people. I mean, I think it's fair to say that anyone who's under the age of 40 has never really seen any sustained inflation. And so this is really spooky to them, and I get it. I wouldn't go too nuts trying to prepare for 7% inflation for the next 30 years, because I just don't think that's going to happen. Speaking of inflation, home prices have been inflating really rapidly in some markets, and that seems to be largely because there's kind of a supply shortage. So how would you urge home buyers to proceed in such an environment so that they're not locking in a home purchase at what in hindsight was an inflated price? You know, I think back to people who bought homes in 2005 and six, four, five, six, right? And with the housing bubble was really inflating then. And if they were buying for the long term and it made sense, it was not, it doesn't feel good to be like, oh, I just bought the top. But years later, it kind of winds its way down. And uh, you're no longer buying the top. And now we have a housing price surge, which kind of tops where we were, you know, beyond that time. I guess in my heart of hearts, number one, even though I own two dwellings, I hate being an owner. So I really like to encourage people to continue to rent if they feel comfortable renting. And I also just would say that if the numbers work for you and you can do this, then great, do it. I wouldn't stretch. I mean, there's a great, in in this kind of an environment, what's great to do is to look at it from the other perspective, which is I own a home. I'd really like to downsize. I'd really like to go somewhere else. Is that an opportunity? Rolling down is a much more interesting prospect than rolling up. But, you know, if the numbers work and you're going to be in a house for a long time, then buy your house and don't worry if the prices are high right this second. And don't worry that mortgage rates are a half a point higher than they were six weeks ago. If the numbers work for you, if you're secure in your earning power, if you haven't committed too much of your money to this endeavor called buying a home, then go for it. What about pay down of a mortgage? That's sort of an evergreen question that we get, whether to pay down a mortgage or invest in the market. How would you suggest that people arrive at the answer that makes sense for them? I mean, it's so funny because I think it's one of the huge questions that I get asked all the time in the pod. I mean, I would say, Paying down mortgage and Roth conversions are my top two (laughs) questions that we get at Jill on Money. It's funny. If you've got piles and piles of money that's sitting in cash and you're really not doing anything with it and you're not going to deplete your entire emergency reserve fund by paying off your 3.5% 30-year mortgage and there's six years left, then fine, go for it. What I think is more troubling for me is that a lot of people who are in the position of wanting to pay down their mortgages, 
would be doing so at their own peril. And what they would be doing is they'd be soaking up and taking all the liquidity that they have. So maybe they've got a brokerage account or some money in cash, and they would be willing to just basically take that down to almost zero, pay down the mortgage, and then they leave themselves with very little emergency reserve. And this is often a question I'll get asked by people who are contemplating retirement a few years out from retirement. And I say, whoa, 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 before you just take all that gorgeous liquidity that's sitting there, all that money, you know, you have to understand that in five years, paying down the mortgage may feel good today. But if something bad happens, now you're forced to then invade a retirement account and pay taxes when you may not want to. And so I think it's really case by case. Generally speaking, it's not something that I love that most people would do. But if you are fortunate enough to be in a position where it's really not going to undo any of the great planning you have already sort of accomplished and you can take the money and say, oh, you know what? I was lucky or I got a windfall and I can use it. And it may not be financially the smartest move because I... I do understand. I mean, I wrote a whole book about the dumb things smart people do with their money. And I do understand the emotions that surround the idea of carrying debt. But I would just caution people that if you are going to be depleting money that you may need as a cushion in the future, it's something I would be very careful about doing. Jill, you referenced people retiring and earlier on you talked about this kind of seasoning that we get as investors, like getting hit by a mallet and how we tend to get more comfortable with risk. For many of us, the older we get, the longer we've been doing this, we know that, yeah, stocks go down, then they come back up. So I guess a question is for people getting close to retirement, does it concern you? You mentioned you're concerned about investors at all life stages. Are you concerned about like complacency about risk and equity market risk among older adults who are maybe thinking about retiring within the next couple of years? Yeah, I just read that headline. I think it was in the journal about older Americans carrying too much risk into retirement and too many, you know, holding stocks. And I mean, look, it totally depends on your comfort level. So if they're, you're complacent, this is obviously a problem. I don't really encounter this. I don't find that most people are complacent. I mostly find that people don't really understand how bonds work and are scared because they hear in the press like, oh my God, bonds are the worst investment to own right now because it's a rising interest rate cycle. And so they're scared of bonds. But, you know, listen, let's say I'm retiring, right? So, you know, I'm in my late 50s, early 60s, and my partner and I are going to retire. And, you know, we've got a portfolio that's uh, 80% risky stuff and 20% less risky stuff. Now, I think that that would be more risk than I personally would want to carry. But if I'm comfortable with a risk and if maybe I have pension or I have other passive income and I don't need to pull money out of the portfolio and I'm really in good shape and I can really withstand it, I'm okay with that. I think the fear is that we have short memories. Not this second, because I think it was just happened two years ago, so it's not so short. But, you know, it was fascinating for me. I was a money manager when the financial crisis hit. And, you know, I was a very wimpy money manager. And so I think that clients did pretty well, relatively speaking, but they still freaked out. And then all those years of bull markets made people kind of forget how freaked out they got. So, you know, maybe what I would say to people who are older and retiring is think, how did you feel for those five weeks where 
the S&P 500 lost a third of its value. If that happened right this second, would it like absolutely make you nuts? Uh, Would it cause you to feel like you had to do something and then maybe try to temper yourself? But, you know, retirement's a long time. It's a long time for a lot of people. And the people that I hear from, they're not retiring at their late 50s and their early 60s. They're not doing like, it's not the fire move. I mean, the fire movement of my generation that I feel like I speak to when I talk to the people who listen to our podcast and radio show, we've adapted it. No one's talking about retire early. They're talking about financial independence, new endeavor or next endeavor. They want to be in a position where they're totally willing to work from age 55 to 70. They don't want to do what they're doing. And so if you need to draw money down from your portfolio to help you with that next or new endeavor, if you need to pull money out of a portfolio to support you doing, you know, whatever your dream job is next, then you may want to consider pulling back the risk. But, you know, honest to God, I am like misbalanced investor. It's my Achilles heel. I should be much richer right now, (laughs) except I don't like risk. Okay, that was part one of the interview on the Morningstar podcast called The Long View. Part two will be tomorrow. If you have a financial question or a comment, you can always leave it for us at the jillonmoney.com website. Just click the Contact Us button. Thank you so much for listening. A lovely April Saturday, the last one of the month. Soon it will be May. Do something nice for someone else today. Grit, growth, grace. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.